love for you to open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. So we continue our study on this wonderful book. This wonderful book that unfortunately uh, freaks some people out. But it shouldn't freak you out. Because in this letter, in this book, we see Jesus. The hero of the story in the book of Revelation is Jesus. The moral of the story in the book of Revelation is that Jesus will, he has, he will overcome. And in this story, and I say story, but I don't mean story like it's fiction. I mean story like it's history. And as strange as it sounds, it's history that's happened, it's history that's happening right now, and it's history that's going to happen. So when I say story, don't think that that means it's fake or it's made up. This is the, what Jesus revealed to John. And he says, I'm going to tell you some things that are about to happen. They're going to take place. Uh, when I used to work at the Christian bookstore, a lady brought back a Bible translation that she had purchased. She said, I can't take this Bible. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, the wording is terrible. I said, oh, really? And, and the translation she used was actually a very conservative, formal translation. It wasn't like she, you know, bought the new hippie translation or something. She bought a pretty standard translation. And I said, well, what didn't she like about it? And she said, well, see here. And it's, uh, it was, it was part, a scripture where Peter talked about, he said, he, was, he said, this is the story of what happened to us. This is the story of what we saw. And she said, see, she, he says, it says here that it's just a story. And I said, well, you know, stories can be true, right? That's why we say true story, you know? <laughs> but I, I didn't feel like I could argue with her. I was working behind a counter. She was a customer. I exchanged it. But to her, you know, story meant it was fiction. But we know that when you tell someone something that's happened, it's, it could be a true story. It should be a true story. And so the book of Revelation takes place from a perspective that's not our perspective. We see everything from the earth looking around. And we, we experience life moving forward through time, beginning, middle, end. We're, we're moving through time at a linear pace. We're going through it. We're experiencing it from a beginning. We're moving to the end. But you know that, that, that the scripture tells us that God exists outside of time. And that in fact, these things that we're seeing, John has caught up to heaven to see them. And the perspective of heaven is not a linear perspective. So God is not moving from beginning to end. He is the beginning and he is the end and he's everything in between. And he's in all places at once. So he's looking down on history as it's happening. And it's all happening in his time. But he's not He's not. He's not saying, I can't wait to find out who wins American Idol this year. He's not saying, I wonder who's going to get elected. He already knows. He's already there. And so when John's cut up to heaven, he experiences events. He witnesses events, not in a perfect, this is how it started and this is how it ends. Because if you'll look at the book of Revelation, there's things that are here. And then and there's something that happens here that that. In our timeline of history, it doesn't line up that way. 
So I'll give you an example, which I've already mentioned a couple weeks ago. But, you know, the, the Christmas story is in the book of Revelation from the perspective of heaven. It talks about a dragon seeking to devour a child. And the woman takes the child and shelters the child. And, and, and the child is taken to the desert where he's protected. Well, that happened to Jesus. Now, the truth is, this may, even though this is a story of something that already happened, there may be something ahead of us that is also going to happen. Because we know that, that in, in the scripture, pro- prophecy is often multi-layered, right? So Daniel saw uh, an abomination of desolation in the temple. He saw someone that was going to desecrate the temple. And the way he describes it, is a perfect description of what happened when Antiochus Epiphanes took over ruling in the Seleucid Empire in Israel. So it happened, the man did exactly what Daniel said he was going to do, and it happened before Jesus was even born. But when Jesus was teaching, he said, and he started talking about the end and the the last days, and he said, and then the abomination of desolation will take place. So he's talking about a future event. So you could ask yourself, well, I guess, I guess that first one wasn't the real one. Or you could understand it this way, that often in prophecy, there's layers. There is, it, it's happened and will happen again. There's a foreshadowing. The Passover was an event, but it was foreshadowing what Jesus would do. Right? And there's, there's all of these things throughout the scripture. So in the book of Revelation, we see things that it, it, it may not all play out, boom, 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 like it's written. Because there's many times where it's, it, it, you know, you jump from here to here, and it's not all taking place in, in, a, in a linear time, but it's all going to take place. And some of it already has. And some of it already has and will yet again. Sometimes we think of that and we just say, well, why bother? Could anyone know the mysteries of this book? Well, there are some things that, quite frankly, I think we'll spend the rest of our lives seeking out and digging into. But one thing that I keep coming back to that we read when we opened this book, it says, blessed is the one who reads it and blessed is the one who hears it and heeds the words that are written in here. So if, if, I, if you're like me, I want to be blessed. It's not a bad thing to want to be blessed. It's a good thing to want to be blessed, Right? Listen, let me tell you something. If, if some people say, well, sometimes being too blessed is a bad thing. Listen, if it was a bad thing, it wouldn't be a blessing. Right? Some people say, God, don't bless me. I don't think I could handle it. Listen, if you couldn't handle it, it wouldn't be a blessing. Therefore, God wouldn't have given it to you. So if anything comes from God, it is always a blessing. Right? Fair enough. If it didn't come from God, it's not a blessing. You won the lottery, that wasn't a blessing. You just won the lottery. <laughs> Don't blame that on God. You won a lottery and all your friends betrayed you. That's not God's fault. So whatever comes from God is a blessing. Amen? I want to be blessed. And I think that's a good thing. You don't want to be blessed. I don't know what you're doing. Right? All right. Moving on. If I want to be blessed, I'm going to read this book. But the scripture also says that it was written to be revealed to the bondservants of Jesus Christ wasn't written as a fantasy, fantasy literature. It wasn't written to tickle your imagination. It was written to bond servants of Jesus Christ. In other words, people that have dedicated their life to the Savior. And when you look at it from that perspective, all of a sudden it gives you hope. This is a letter of hope. 
And in all these things we see, good wins, Jesus triumphs, this all turns out good. I want to pick up at a place we left off. In verse 10 of chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I, I went over this a couple weeks ago. But when he says, I was in the Spirit, I used to believe that he was purposely, this was a time that he'd set aside. But when you look at the original language, the implication is that he was caught up into the Spirit. It was an unexpected thing. And the Lord's day didn't mean Sunday to him. In fact, the church didn't start calling Sunday the Lord's day till hundreds of years later. The Lord's day uh, in his day and age was the first day of the month. It was what the Greeks and the Romans called the Lord's day based on a day for the emperor. Or you could say it was the day of the Lord. And, and in that sense, the day of the Lord is the day when God gets his way. And so here he's caught into the spirit on the Lord's day. And this is what he hears. He heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And I love the fact that that as many times as we read this book, we're going to see him use a lot of sentences that have the phrase, it was like this. If you ever read Ezekiel in the vision he sees, or Daniel in the vision he sees, or John in the vision he sees, they're not like, I'll tell you what I saw. They they say, it looked kind of like this. Mixed with this and a little bit of this. Because what they're seeing, they don't have a a, a language to describe it. So that's why he says, I saw this and it was like this. And and I looked, I heard this and it was kind of like this. He's using his best language to describe what he heard and saw. But what he hears and sees are so far beyond his experience that he's just trying to compare it to something. So he says, this doesn't mean that Jesus was behind him, you know, sneaking up on him and then blowing a trumpet in his ear. His voice to John sounded like a trumpet. And then it says in verse 11, this voice said, write in a book what you see. Because you guys know, if it was an actual trumpet, you probably couldn't understand that sentence very well. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Theotira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the churches that Jesus has in his hand and the, the, the purpose of those churches. And you might, we might ask, well, why these seven churches? And a lot of people have a lot of theories about that. But one thing you can't ignore is that all these seven churches have, are found in the same Roman province of Asia Minor. He didn't write to the church in Jerusalem. He didn't write to the church in Rome. He didn't write to the church in Antioch. He wrote to these seven churches in a specific area. And there's a lot of theories about why those seven in that area. Because there was a lot of churches in Asia Minor, a lot more than these seven. Best, best explanation I've ever heard is, is for you to just look at a map. An ancient map of this time. And all of these churches are strategically located along the the classic trade routes, and in fact are key cities. Each one of them is a key city in an area of Asia Minor. Ephesus, historically in church history, was, was like the lead church in Asia Minor. It was, 
It was the coast city. It was the city that you'd first go to if you're going to go to this region. And so a lot of the times, if an apostle or a a preacher would come to uh, preach in this area, they'd go through Ephesus first, which is why when Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus, one of the things he says is, he says, I know that you've you've paid attention. You haven't allowed false teachers to get through. You've found them out and you haven't tolerated them. One of the reasons that's important is because Ephesus was kind of like a gateway to all the other ones. And Ephesus was where John was set up. A lot of these churches were started by the Apostle Paul. But when Paul died, a lot of them were maintained. um, And uh, the overseeing work was done by the Apostle John, who had lived in Ephesus, in fact, with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And from Ephesus, he had kind of oversaw these different churches And I believe that each one of these seven churches was a strategic hub in a region. Now, the cool thing is that while each of these seven churches, as we read what Jesus writes to them, has unique challenges and unique issues that they're dealing with, each and every one of them we can identify with. And that's why it says, Jesus said, to whomever has an ear... Let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So we shouldn't fall into the trap of saying, well, that was what they were dealing with. Jesus addressed it. Good for them. No, we should be able to read all of these letters and say, God, speak to me and speak to our church through these letters. We have ears. We want to hear what you're saying to the churches. He doesn't just say, I'm saying this to this church. He says, I'm saying this to all the churches. This may be addressing something that is unique to them, but it's going to pop up throughout history in every place that you go, you're going to find these issues. So he says, write these letters, write down what you hear. In the verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. And and what he means by that is he was almost looks like a human. You know what I mean? Uh, He says, I saw somebody that had kind of human form, but he didn't look like an ordinary man. Well, we know here's what he's seeing. He's seeing Jesus Christ himself. But he's not, as we've gone over the past few weeks, he's not seeing the Jesus that he walked around with for three years of ministry through Galilee and Jerusalem and all these places. He is seeing Jesus risen, exalted, glorified, and he looks a little different. He looks a little scary. And it says here, that he's standing in the middle of the lampstands and he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. And girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. It's interesting when, he, when he's got his back turned to him, he compares it to a trumpet. When he turns around, it, it sounds like waters. And we can only imagine what that sounds like. But I can tell you this. This isn't good old Jesus the carpenter. This is Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the risen, glorified, exalted Savior. 
Ezekiel had a vision down by the river. He saw a wheel within a wheel. He saw a lot of really weird stuff. But he saw someone that looked a lot like this. My bet is they saw the same person. And this is not Jesus, like I said, who walked around Galilee. I mean, it is Jesus who walked around Galilee, but it's him not as they knew him. It's him risen and exalted. In verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He placed his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks amongst the golden lampstands, says this. And we're going to cut off for a minute right there. So Jesus explains what the stars are and what the lampstands are. So the stars, he says, are the angels of the churches. Now you might, immediately what comes to our mind when we hear angels is are heavenly angelic beings but the, the word angel in Greek was just, was just a word that meant messenger. And it's translated messenger in different scriptures throughout the New Testament. So how do we know whether he's talking about a human messenger or a divine creature? Well, first of all, we know that each one of these messengers was assigned to one of these churches. And he's not just assigned to, you know, watch over them. He's assigned to give this message. Now, I don't believe John wrote a letter, an angel picked it up, an angel shows up on Sunday morning and says, I got a letter for you guys, you want to hear it? (laughs) It was entrusted to the leader of that congregation, to the pastors of these churches. And one of the other reasons we know that is that the angels of these churches are also called to repent. Now, heavenly beings don't need to repent because they don't get the shot to repent. They mess up once, they're done. We're the only ones that get the luxury of repentance. So, the angels we're talking about, he's not saying write it to some heavenly creature with big wings that's watching over you. He's he's saying write it to the messenger. Write it to the leaders of these churches. Write it to the pastors of these churches. And it's the responsibility and accountability is on these pastors to deliver what Jesus is saying. And that in itself is intimidating because Jesus didn't write seven love notes. Even though they were letters of love. They weren't like, I just love you and think you're amazing. Sometimes when the the sunlight catches your eye, I'm reminded how beautiful you really are. I especially like your music. It's some of the best music I've ever heard. No, he's, he's really constructively tearing some things down, plucking some things up, and then building and planting. Because out of his mouth is coming a sharp sword. 
two-edged sword. And we would think, well, that's obviously for the enemy. But maybe, because what, what does he first use his mouth for in this letter? He uses his mouth to address the churches. Now, maybe the reason it's a sharp two-edged sword is because the sharper it is, as ironic as it sounds, the sharper it is, the less likely it is to really hurt you. Let me give you an example. If you got to go in for surgery, do you want the surgeon using a dull knife or a sharp knife? Do you want the surgeon just sawing on you with a butter knife and just eventually getting through? No. The sharper it is, in fact, the sharper it is, the less damage he'll do, the more precise he can be. One of, the, one of the main differences that we see between the Holy Spirit, between Jesus and the accuser of the brethren, which is Satan, is that, that, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the, God himself is, is a masterful surgeon who will remove what it is that's killing you. But Satan is a serial killer who has no interest, no interest in making you better. So the, the, the great surgeon will say this right here. This is not of me. Allow me to remove this in your life and you will be healed. That's why when the Holy Spirit addresses things in our life that are not good, he addresses the things. What happens when Satan addresses you? He, does not, he doesn't just address the things, he, he addresses you. The Holy Spirit says, this is not of me. Satan says, you're not right. You're bad. The surgeon says, let me cut this spot. I'm going to cut it right here. Satan just starts hacking. There's a difference. So when you feel that, that's, that's a great difference between discipline and, 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 and um, correction and condemnation. Condemnation says, you're bad. Whereas correction says, this isn't good. This is bad. Let me take it. Let me free you from this. Let me remove this. I want you free. You're my child. Let me heal you. And sometimes to heal you, he's got to cut it open and get it out and thank God for it. Because if he didn't, that thing would be stuck to us. So he's got this sharp sword. And that sharp sword isn't to destroy you, but rather to heal you. Which is why in those seven letters, with the exception of a couple, he brings up some things that aren't good. But he does it in a way that heals them. He doesn't do it in a way and says, I'm just done with you. You guys are a bunch of losers. Look at you. He's not making a, a case against them. He's exposing some things so he can heal them. And that's a really good thing. He says this. So he says the seven stars are the leaders of these churches, the pastors of these churches. The lampstands, now he says the seven golden lampstands. And the word for golden, there's different words for golden in ancient Greek. The word that he uses is krusos, which in ancient literature, which is our best way of knowing what they're talking about, because how did they use it back then? In ancient literature, this was often used to, to describe the purest of gold, the best quality gold. And when you look around at churches around the world, Let's just make it easier. Churches that you've been in, you might not always have described them as the purest of quality. The best thing you've ever experienced. Why? Because churches have people in them. Right? That's their one real flaw. <laughs> that they've got people in them and people tend to be imperfect. Even Christian people tend to be imperfect. Right? <laughs> 
God puts you in a family of people and you first walk in and you go, thank God, this is amazing. We all love each other and, and we all fit together. And then you find out that God puts you in a group of people that don't always like the same things you like and you don't like the same things they like. In fact, if it hadn't been for Jesus, you never would have hung out, but here you are. And he doesn't just say, wave at each other on Sunday morning. He says, why don't you eat together? Why don't you pray together? Why don't you work together? And, and people rub you the wrong way. And, and sometimes they say things and they mean it well, but it, 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 it trips you up and it, it, it hurts you or whatever. Sometimes we're very critical of church because we've been scarred by the people in the church. Well, it's interesting to see what Jesus thinks about the church. We're going to find out in these seven letters, he does not think his church is perfect, as in doesn't need any fixing. But he does see his church as lovely, as beautiful, as glorious, as holy. And in a sense, yes, as perfect, because he sees things as they are through his blood. So his church is not finished. It's not done. It's not, it's not a work that's, that's already, you know, all the, all the leaks are patched up and everything like that. But he's sanctifying his church. In fact, in order to get this kind of gold, it has to go through the process of refinement. In fact, more than one iteration of that refinement has to take place. And as the Holy Spirit, that fire of the Holy Spirit refines us, and the word of God refines us and cleans us and prunes us. Step by step, we become more like the bride he's prepared us to be. But know this, Jesus looks at his church and sees something pure and something gold. Something very valuable. And I think we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice to be very critical of the church. Because the church is Jesus' highest possession. It's his most prized possession. When I worked in a bookstore, it was, it was in vogue. It was a very fashionable thing to, to claim. You know, a lot of books came out at a certain time. Very fashionable to claim that you loved Jesus, but you couldn't stand the church. Or you, you loved Jesus, but it was Christians that bugged you. And it was Christians writing this book. It wasn't like people that didn't know the Lord. It was Christians. And it was kind of a hipster way of saying, I know, we all got issues. But, you know, I love Jesus. I just can't stand these people. The problem is, is that I don't think Jesus takes very kindly to that. We all know that there's people that bug us. But I wouldn't take it very well if you started criticizing my wife. Right? Not that you have anything to criticize her for. She's pretty much perfect. But if you tried, you wouldn't say, Jonathan, I just want you to know. Like if you were trying to compliment me, Jonathan, I just want you to know I love you. Can't stand Tia. Love you. And you think I'm going to be like, oh, bless your heart. I'm so glad I'm your favorite. I agree with you. I am much better than her. I just, I'm glad you see that. No, I wouldn't take that well. Here's the deal. Jesus does the surgery. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, does the refining. God does the fixing up. It's probably not your job to point out all the flaws. It's your job to be part of his solution. To walk in love and extend grace as we receive grace and, and to say, you know, thank you, Lord, for putting me into your body. He says these are seven golden lampstands. 
It's important, you know, I think the King James says candlesticks, but that's not a great translation of that phrase because it really, it, it doesn't describe a wax candle. It literally describes a lamp that burned oil. And it brings me back to the book of Zechariah when Zechariah sees his vision and, and God is talking to Zerubbabel and he says, you see this here, these are seven lamps and they have seven spouts that are tapped in to this oil. And the oil in the scripture is almost always signifying the anointing, the Holy Spirit. And he says, he says, you see this? There are seven lamps and there are seven channels and there's seven, seven bowls of oil. And in other words, he's saying this is perfection. This is completion. All the, uh, the oil that these lamps need, they will always have a, a, a a perfect supply of the Spirit. And he says to him, right after he describes it, he says, so I'm telling you, it's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by power. It's going to be by my Spirit, says the Lord. So he's saying, everything I'm going to do is going to be done by the fuel of my Spirit. And there's always going to be enough. And everything you do it's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. It's going to be by my spirit, says the Lord. So these are lamps that run on the power of the spirit. Churches are meant to be fed, energized, animated by the Holy Spirit. We survive because of the spirit. We live by the spirit. It's not by our might. It's not by our power. It's not by the people that come to your church that have the most skill or the most money or the most talent. It is by his spirit that this gets done. And he puts these lamps not in a hidden place so they can work out their issues, but rather he puts them on a stand. Puts them on a stand so that inconvenient as it is, everybody gets to see. The church is meant to be a very public-facing body, not a private hidden thing. Not supposed to be something that, that, you know, we gather in secret. The church is meant to be God's method of showing light to the world. I mean, that's what Israel was supposed to be too. Remember, Israel, God said, through you, I'll show my light to the nations. They failed at that. But the church is his perfect representation. And that's the problem is we look at it and we go, why would you want us to represent you? We don't do a good job. Why don't you just watch? They put one of us on CNN and we say something stupid. You know, we, we, we got people that claim to be part of us that are protesting funerals. Like, what, I mean, what's wrong with you? Why would you trust us with anything? And he says, ah, you're not perfect, but you're mine and I'm using you. And it won't be by might. It won't be by power. It'll be by my spirit. The church is God's method of revealing himself to the world. It's his method of revealing his wisdom. The Bible says that he is going to reveal the manifold, it means all-encompassing wisdom of God to all the rulers and principalities. Every, every power that's up there in the heavenly places is going to find out what God wants to do because of the church. We're peering into things. We're pressing into things that angels have longed to look into, the Bible says. That prophets made inquiries and searches about. We're living it. The church is God's method. We, we studied at the beginning of summer it's in Ephesians, it says, and he put Christ, his head, over the body, which is his church. 
the church, which is, sorry, head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is the fullness of God. It's the full expression of God. And it's his method of filling all and being in all. So he wants to fill the culture. He wants to fill the world with his light and his love and his presence. And he could have done that without us, but he didn't want to. So he says, I'm, my people are going to be my way of filling the earth. So that's probably why he's put us on a stand. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and it's in other places in the Gospels, he, he said, you are a city on a hill. You're, a light, you're the light of the world. In fact, let me, let me read that to you real quick. In Matthew chapter 5, He says in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Now, he doesn't say, hey, you, you're supposed to tell people about the light. I'm the light. You're not the light. Stop saying you're the light. I'm the light. He doesn't say that. He looks at them and says, you're the light. No, 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 no. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Right? That's what we say because it makes it sound very holy to say it. Don't look at me. Oh, don't look at me. Don't look at me for I am but a man. Look at Jesus. I'm sorry. What direction are they supposed to point their head? Right? Are they supposed to look at the sky and hope he shows up in the clouds? Because he'll do that once, but not like every day. How are they supposed to look at Jesus? They're supposed to look at us and see Jesus. Stop looking at me. I'm flawed. Yes, you are. But quit saying things Jesus didn't tell you to say. Right? You're not helping him. You're like, I mean, we always think that Jesus needs a better PR team. Like, well... He wasn't alive in 2017. We got to help him out. Poor Jesus. He's so back in the first century, but you know. <laughs> Jesus, you probably don't want them looking at us. No, I do want them looking at you. You're the light of the world. No. Yes, you are. Because I'm in you. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Set means somebody put it there on purpose. It didn't accidentally end on a hill and I was like, oh, people can see us. No, it was put there on purpose. Verse 15. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a lampstand. Who, who put our light on a lampstand? Jesus put us on the lampstand. He actually wants people to see us. And I know we've discussed, we sometimes have our flaws. But people are supposed to see the people of God. And they're supposed to see Jesus. They put it on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. And our house, listen, if, if the house was just the house of God, if the house was just other Christians, they wouldn't need more light. They already have light. The people in your house are the people that you're coming in contact with, the, the, the influence you have in your community, the people that God places around you that don't have light, but they they get around you and they see light. 
And hopefully that light is supposed to be so contagious that they want that light. That it shows them some things they didn't know because someone who's in darkness doesn't know they're in darkness until they encounter light. It gives light to all who are in the house. What would happen if you put it under the basket? The first thing that would happen is no one would see it, but what's this? What, what would happen? Darkness. Yeah, it'd be darkness. And then if you put that basket over the, over the flame, will the flame survive? No. Without oxygen, it dies. We're not designed to be in a hidden place. We're, we're supposed to be in public. We're supposed to be in the culture. Jesus said, I, I, he says, I'm not trying to remove them from the world. I don't ask that you remove them from the world. I ask that you keep them from the evil one. And I believe that the churches that he talks about are lampstands because they are strategic places that are influencing the world around them with the light of God. They're supposed to be seen. It's one of the churches that he talks to, and we'll, we'll study this in the coming weeks, but one of the churches that he writes a letter to, he says, if you don't fix what I'm telling you to fix, I'll remove the lampstand. Does that mean he's going to take their church away? No, maybe not. Maybe it just means they have influence. They're, they're having an effect on the community around them. And he's saying, I'll remove that position. I'll give it to somebody else. Somebody else will have the influence you have right now. Somebody else will have the open doors you're walking through right now. Somebody else will be in a position to shine my light in this place. If, you're, if you guys can't get it together, I'll pick another city. Well, I wouldn't want him to do that. But obviously, God's the one putting us on a stand. We should be seen. And like I said, sometimes I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes I go, hmm, can you just wait till we get our act together? Wait till we fix everything. Wait till we fix everything. But we're not all going to be fixed until, until we're changed in a twinkling of an eye. Until we know as we're known. We're not all going to be perfect until that moment when we get to trade in this body for the new one. And this brain finally gets everything it's supposed to have. But we're still, we're still here. Warts and all. But we don't have the warts. Jesus took the warts. Right? Is that, that scriptural? That seems like good theology. <laughs> Jesus is sanctifying his church. He's cleaning us. He's preparing us. Now, here's the, here's the deal. Scripturally, we have been sanctified. Already. Done. On the cross. Done. Your position. You are permanently sanctified. But there's a sanctifying work taking place in your life. So you're, you still mind, your mind needs to be renewed. Yeah. You need to say no to the flesh. The Bible says several times, since you're a new creation, put off the old self, put on the new self. So you've got to choose the new self that's already been prepared for you. And the church, as we're going to read in these seven letters, they've got issues. They've got issues that need to be fixed, need to be addressed. Jesus doesn't say, no, there's nothing wrong with you. He says, you need to fix this. But he doesn't reject his church. We are betrothed. We are the bride. I'll tell you this. Jesus will not divorce his people. He will not reject the church. And the church in the last days will be more glorious than the world's ever seen. 
pure gold, pure gold. The way this happens, the way we get refined and fixed up is allowing that sword to operate on us, to cut away the stuff that doesn't need to be there and to perfect the things that should be there. We need the vine dresser. We need Jesus. We need his word speaking to us and not always speaking, I like you, I like you, I like you, but sometimes speaking, there's things that I want to heal if you'll let me heal them. This is not right, but I will make it right. The final point I want to rest on is what gives me the most hope. Where does John see Jesus standing? In the middle of the lampstands. And he's holding these pastors, these leaders in his hand. He's holding them in his hand. He's, he's protecting them. He's holding them. He's guiding them. But he's also walking amongst the churches. So that's what he says in chapter 2 verse 1. It says the one who walks among the lampstands. So we know that Jesus is everywhere. Yeah, God is everywhere. We know that his presence is always with us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. But we also know that, that he is overseeing his church. He's the chief senior pastor of all of us. He's the good shepherd. And he's walking amongst the churches. And one thing he keeps saying to these churches is in these letters is, I know your deeds. I know what you've done. I know and he doesn't mean that in a bad way. Some, if somebody came up to you and says, I know what you did, right, we wouldn't be like, oh, good. Well, you know, praise the Lord. <laughs> that would be kind of a frightening thing. But this is not a frightening thing. This is a good thing. The word I know that he uses there is not, it, there's different words for knowledge in the Greek, in, in this ancient Greek. But the word that he uses is literally to have observed. I know by observation. I've seen. I've watched so Jesus is very aware, of course he is, right? But it's good to be reminded. He's very aware of how our gatherings and, and, and how this church is, is, is functioning, how the church in Lloyd Minster is functioning. He's very aware because he's walking amongst us and he's watching. And he's not watching to build a case against you because that case has already been settled. He's watching and observing because he is the good shepherd. And he won't allow us to fall. So he's going to watch. He's going to say, there are things that we need to fix here. He's going to say, there are things you're doing right, and here's what they are. But he's watching. Doesn't it give you comfort to know that we're not just on our own waiting for Jesus to return? Like, let's do our best. And then when Jesus comes back, he'll fix the mess we made. Thank God. We're not like, you know, the toddler that was left in the room for 15 minutes and the parent comes back and, and is shocked at the, at the utter mess they've made. Jesus is amongst us. He's walking amongst his churches. He's observing. He's, he's speaking. He's ministering. But he is... He is going to address things that need to be addressed. Aren't you thankful that he didn't leave you and say, I'll come back in well, a few years or a few centuries. I'll see you guys later. Just do your best. He's walking amongst us right now. He stands in the middle of his churches. 
He put us here. Can you imagine Jesus has a church in Lloydminster? This word church is a small part of that group, but we're part of it. And, and, and New Life and Southridge and First Baptist and Lloyd Gospel Fellowship and all these places, they're a part of it too. We're all a part of this. And Jesus is with us and he's amongst us. We know that because we've experienced him, but, but he's also here to, to, to know us. To, he knows and loves us, but he knows, he knows what we're doing and he knows what needs to be fixed and he knows what needs to be healed and he loves us enough to bring it up if we're listening. Do we have ears to hear what our good shepherd would say? I am so heartened to know that Jesus chooses to describe his church as gold, pure, precious, valuable gold. We're the most, I said this before, but we are the most precious possession he has. We're the only thing that he viewed valuable and worthy enough to be called his bride. That's an amazing thing. A bride that he will present spotless and without blemish. Wow. That's amazing. A bride that he's Scripture says in Ephesians 5, that Ephesians 5 and 6, it talks about marriage. It says that he is washing and cleaning his bride. He's preparing his church. We're going to read in the next few weeks about a Savior and a King that walked amongst the churches and said, here's how you will be fixed. And he tells the rest of us, listen close to what I say to them, because what I'm saying to them applies to you. I, I want to challenge you tonight on three different levels. Number one, I want to challenge you to think of the church like Jesus thinks of it. As, as critical as it, w- it would be easy to be, right? It would be easy to be critical. Because we've all had bad experiences. You, ha- you get stuck with a diverse group of people for any period of time. It doesn't matter how nice they are. Eventually, something will happen that will, have to, th- that will put you in a place where you have to forgive somebody. You have to love somebody you didn't want to love. All of that. You have to get over your issues. That's going to happen. I challenge you to see the church as Jesus sees it. I challenge you to fall in love with the church because the church is just as much a part of Jesus as anything else. The church is his body, and it's his bride. Could we fall in love with the people of God? Well, fall in love is probably not the best term because fall in love sounds accidental. But the love that we know of God is it's incidental, it's willful. Can we choose to love the church despite her flaws? Can we see it as Jesus sees it? Can we see the people around us as Jesus sees them? Secondly, I want to challenge you on this and encourage you in this. I want to encourage you with the knowledge that Jesus is amongst us. And to know that that's a good thing because I've talked a lot about the corrective side of it. But you know, if you, we're going to read these letters and we're going to see the encouraging side of it. Jesus is going to say, you're doing some things right. There's a scripture that talks about the day when we're all going to be taken up and, 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 and to be with him. And it says, encourage one another with this fact because know this, that your work is not in vain. You're not wasting your time. 
this counts, right? You get credit for this. Jesus is watching and he's, he's, he's loving to see his people shine. So be aware that Jesus is walking amongst us and be open to his encouragement and his correction so that we might become more and more like him every day and a pure expression of Jesus on the earth. And thirdly, I want to encourage you, embrace the lampstand. Embrace the fact that you have, that God will elevate his people to positions of influence and positions. And when I say positions of influence, so many times we think of the world's version of influence. But uh, uh, somebody can be just as much an influence working the till at a 7-Eleven as, uh, as, as they could be in, in a, you know, a lieutenant governor of a province. I should say lieutenant governor. We're in Canada. Right? So don't underestimate your influence. But understand that there is a lampstand that God puts you on and it's meant to be a position of shining. And be good with that. Let him shine. Don't hide the light that you have in you. In, in the name of false humility, don't hide it under a basket because number one, you rob the entire house of light. And number two, you rob that flame of oxygen. So let it shine. Let Jesus shine in you. Amen? And it'd be cool with that. And like I said, that third point goes along with the second point because the second point is as he corrects and, and fixes and addresses issues, we become a purer and purer and brighter and brighter expression of our Savior. As his love is worked in us, we begin to love like he loves. We begin to have wisdom that's not of ourself. In fact, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians that he has been made unto us wisdom from God. So embrace it. And thank God for the church in the last days. Because the church in the last days is God's greatest tool. That the gates of hell will not prevail against. The church in the last days is God's light to the world. The church in the last days is how God intends to show his plan, his wisdom, not just to the people right here on earth, but even to angels and demons alike, that they'll all get to know the plan of God by what he's doing through the church. We're his inheritance. We're his bride. We're his body. We're his temple. We're all of these things. We should take that honor with rejoicing, delight, and reverence. Amen? Amen. Stand with me.